to Culture Plan B. I'm David Jubb and this is the fifth and penultimate episode of this series in which I will not be interviewing people with six-figure salaries from our country's best-funded cultural institutions. Instead, Culture Plan B will be meeting with artists and communities who create culture outside big cultural institutions, like most people do. Today, I'm lucky to get to talk with Sada Dean Syed, who is director of Home in Slough. Sad is one of the kindest and most inspirational people I know who works in the cultural sector. In this episode, we get to hear about his recent work during COVID and his brilliant ideas about how we can all make a difference to make change in the cultural sector. Now the government has announced more details of its 1.57 billion rescue package for the cultural sector, we can see that 500 million goes to film and TV production, while 880 million goes to a new cultural recovery fund for arts and heritage organisations. There have been concerns about the priority being given to what the Secretary of State for Culture has called the crown jewels. And the chair of the new panel for the cultural recovery fund That's right, it's going to be the chair of the Royal National Theatre, Damon Buffini. You just couldn't make it up. I also note that the DCMS announcement states that smaller organisations must show how they benefit their local community and area. Well, that's great, isn't it? Tell me, what is it about larger organisations which makes them exempt from an expectation that they will benefit their local community and area? In a single sentence, this seems to sum up so much of what is wrong with the way we structure funding for arts and culture. But what might the Cultural Recovery Fund have looked like if someone like Saad had been at the top of Oliver Dowden's list of people to talk with? Saad could have helped Oliver understand that despite government funding priorities over recent decades to sustain large national institutions at all costs, and despite a minority of arts funding reaching independent artists and communities, it is still those same artists and communities who are responsible for the big leaps forward in contemporary culture. Yes, it's true that new art artistic movements of our time have not been cooked up by big, well-funded cultural institutions. They are in fact created by independent artists and communities. And yes, the new Cultural Recovery Fund manages to completely ignore this fact. The question is now whether some or all of those organisations in receipt of recovery funding can be persuaded to share their resources with artists and communities. If they are smart, they will realise that it will benefit them in the long run. So there is currently talk of a second series of Culture Plan B. So if you have ideas for episodes, including the idea of creating your own episode, then just get in touch with us at cultureplanb at gmail.com. We want to introduce visual descriptions for our speakers. And in future episodes, I will do this at the start of interviews. For this episode, I asked Saab to send me a description of himself. He says, I am tall, 1 metre, 80. I am fairly slim, brown. I have long, black, curly hair. I have a short beard and brown eyes. And my name is David and I am 6 foot tall. I'm white skinned. I wear a hat and have no hair except for an even coat of stubble around my head. And today I'm wearing a perplexed expression after reading the DCMS website this morning. I hope you enjoy hearing from Saab. 
How are you today? I'm very good and thank you for having me with oh, you. Oh no, thank you for joining us. I'm really privileged and excited. I'm a huge fan of you. I'm a huge fan of your approach uh, and and your work. So you're currently director of a home in Slough, uh, which supports exhibitions, workshops, performances across Slough. And one of the many things I think that's interesting about home from my point of view is that it's actually a consortium of cultural and community organisations who work together across the town. And over this last year, you've been co-creating artworks, light shows, co-programming with community groups. And it would actually be great in our conversation to hear to hear more about what you're thinking in terms of the future for home in Slough, as well as how you've adapted during this pandemic. Your background prior to being with home was that you, you developed the idea of city takeovers. Indeed, your latest iteration of a city takeover took place in London, where young people and communities got to take over some of London's biggest cultural institutions. You were Artistic Director of Battersea Arts Centre, where we previously connected. You've worked with the participatory theatre company Spare Tire. And before coming to the UK, you were founder and co-artistic director of Terre Sans Frontières in Morocco, in which you created an extraordinary series of residences that brought artists together from different countries to learn from each other and also to create long lasting connections. So for me, there's a clear sense and interest in your work, which is about which is about change, changing perceptions, changing cultural institutions and changing people's lives through creative interventions and opportunities. And it will be good to talk more about how you think we need to change the cultural sector. Maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your work with Home um, in Slough. I know you only joined the organisation at the end of 2019, but perhaps you could tell us about some of the communities you work with, um, perhaps about what you've been doing during the pandemic and also your thinking about the future. So, yeah, be great to hear from you. Thank you, David. Uh, this is such a great introduction. Luckily enough, it's recorded, so I can I can copy it and use it in the future. <laughs> it was such an interesting time for me to join um, Home Slough. Slough is such an interesting place and obviously it has a, a lot of the ingredients that I'm uh, very interested in. First, it's one of the most diverse uh, towns in the mm. UK. So it offers this really, really unique richness uh, uh, within the people and the cultures and the perspectives and visions that they bring to the table. And it's also a town that is going down through a huge regeneration. Mm. So it feels that the future is there to grab. And it feels that there is a huge opportunity for uh, local communities and local organizations to be part of reimagining what that future is. And on another hand, uh, decision makers in the town are really keen for people to participate in redesigning what that future is. So it feels like a really, really, really great environment to um, to just make change happen, but also have all the right voices to shape what that change is going to look like. And obviously, while work, while starting the work and starting the, the to implement a vision for what role can Homeslough play in the time, 
uh, we had COVID-19 happening in March and it was a it was a really, really tricky time with a lot of challenges, but also a lot of opportunities, actually, for people to come together mm-hmm. and to have a space for reflection and discussion and conversation about real challenges that are stopping us from building the future that we all want to see um, for the UK and also beyond. One thing that is particular about Homeslow as a CPP, so we're part of Creative People and Places, is that we're also running a venue. So the first thing that we did, obviously, like uh, any other venue or theatre, is that we have to shut our venue on the high street. Uh, And then we kind of had to step back and really reflect on the situation. And we felt that what we were facing was going to be a long-term challenge. And uh, we very quickly decided that this is going to be a marathon instead of a quick run. Uh, And I think that uh, was really, really helpful for us to start looking at ahead of us of what is the next three months? What are the next six months? What are the next uh, nine months going to look like for us? Um, And through all of these challenges, we kind of try to again reflect of what are the opportunities that we have now that we maybe didn't have before. And one of the things that came to our attention is time. We had artists and communities that had a lot more time in their hands. Uh, And we just started to invest in in that and creating coaching and mentoring schemes, creating training online, and uh, uh, really looking at a a phase one of our work is to scale and prepare and support communities uh, and creatives who may have like great ideas, but have never had the right time before mm. to develop those ideas. So that was phase mm. one. And then from that phase one, we're now going to phase two, where we are having more time to uh, on one-to-one support to take the dreams and the projects that are written on a paper to the next level, where we are now starting to implement some of those projects within our summer program. And then we're going to take further ones to different programs later on in the year. And all of that comes in the idea of how can Homeslow support the growth of creative communities? And how can we shift our position from investing in product and outcome to starting to invest in people and communities? Mm. And how do we have a really clear picture of where we start a connection and where do we end that connection? Mm. Because what's important for us is that we invest in creative communities, but that those creative communities get into a position where they are completely independent where they're just flying and they don't need any support anymore. They know how to write their business plan. They know how to fundraise, etc. So uh, as as much as it was an overwhelming three months or four Mm -hmm. months, it actually was also really exciting uh, months for me as a curator and for us as an organization. And we've been able to um, achieve quite a lot. But most importantly is really having the time to invest on a human-to-human relationship And I think that will offer us such a great ground going forward. That sounds amazing. Can I ask you, in terms of that shift from a sort of production mindset to more focusing around the kind of process and engagement with communities, what what are some of the motivations for you behind that? What's what are some of the differences, and um, and maybe also what are some of the challenges for you in in doing that? For me, what this means is that you are entering in a cycle that can be very exciting for the organization itself because you have a start and end point and you are also able to visualize in 4, 10, 15 years who within the town or within the city 
came into those connections with the organization, with the venue, and then started and ended up that journey with that venue and started growing and being independent. It's a way for the organization to be at the heart of the city or of the town as a factory uh, that builds people who are able to dream and achieve. And so this is, this is I think, where I also see my work as a, either as an artistic director or curator or creative, is how can I facilitate, how can I play a role of a bridge where um, obviously I come with all my skills to the table and I have the discussions, the creative discussions with the communities, etc. But I can also support in mapping a strategy of how do you go from A to B. But most importantly, for me, the cutting point is where we get to a situation and to a position where you don't need me anymore. And that for me is a cycle of growth where, again, we are investing in people and the product becomes just part of the process instead of having the product as the outcome of that relationship. I get it. Yeah, yeah, that makes huge sense. So actually... The product and the uh, you know the artwork, the project, the gathering, the the moment; those things are still happening, but they're not the kind of fundamental ambition and goal for you and for Home Slough. The ambition is the forming and shaping and developing of those relationships. Uh, that the, the people involved in those relationships um, are motivated, excited, bring their own skills, bring their own ideas, and then start to begin to create something which is the, is sustainable themselves. So in the last conversation in culture plan B, we talked a bit about building things that build other things. And it seems, it seems like a, an idea which is about, yeah, enabling and supporting other people to create and make. Yeah. And to illustrate that, for example, now we're, uh, I'm working with some, uh, just really, really amazing and inspiring members of the Caribbean community. And when we first started that relationship, we had that discussion on the first day. And I said, okay, so here is the process that we'll be working with. We'll be in a relationship and our goal is to kind of break that relationship yeah. is to get to a point where you can just fly with your own wings and you don't need support anymore. So we started, for example, since COVID-19, we started with those training online around production, how you write your business plan, etc. We've had some uh, one-to-one mentoring and coaching. And um, after this phase, I've worked with them to uh, produce a uh, um, program around the Windrush day. And then now we're doing uh, quite an exciting project called the Global Cooking Theatre, where we're bringing different women from the Caribbean community. And every Saturday they would come and cook a meal uh, from their childhood um, with with an audience that is uh, joining in uh, Zoom. And then they would, uh, it's a way for them to talk about their culture, but using also their creative skills. And the session end up by everyone coming to uh, eat the meal together and the chef would wear dresses from uh, her second country and facilitate mm. a discussion about memories and history, etc. But w- if you look at um, all the strategy that I have with uh, uh, those members of community, we're heading towards the next Windrush celebration for it to be completely led mm. by them. So they would fundraise for it. They would imagine what the program is and they would run it. They would produce it, etc. So it's looking at, okay, mm. we'll start those 12 months by Homeslow really supporting you. But the, the outcome of this is that you'll be able to lead 
your own community creatively in a way that mm. you can produce, fundraise, etc. That's amazing. And that's 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 in a way is is kind of investing in the creativity of the yeah. town uh, for that creativity to be sustainable and to be in a position that it can just yeah. grow with time. In, it's really interesting in community development that would be described as an asset based model. Um, where you build around the assets that are already existing in communities, you know, the skills, the knowledge, the understanding, the lived experience that is already there, and you build that and grow those assets. It's interesting because in culture, and certainly in the kind of funded cultural landscape, we tend to work on a deficit model, which is that we we look at what communities don't have, you know, what they don't um, have access to. And we create all these kind of policies and ideas around access to arts, which is based on kind of you must come in, see this stuff because it's really almost like it's really good for you. Take this spoon, spoon it down until you'll feel better. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's a kind of deficit based model, whereas what you're describing is much more one which which recognises skills, lived experience, ideas, knowledge, and also a desire to just grow and sustain those things rather than come come in and, and join us and get something from this that will help you to feel better or feel richer yeah. in some way. One of the things that uh, was really, really interesting for me to kind of discover through this period is, so obviously we're working a lot with diversity. And when I talk about diversity, it's diversity of gender, culture, socioeconomic, uh, yeah, so there is, there is a really wide diversity that we're working with. And when this period started, we knew and we understood very well that the, the main focus now was just to bring food to mm. the house. How can you then start discussions about culture and about things that might sound uh, um, really, really not mm. important and irrelevant at the moment? But the way we've approached it is we started discussions with those communities asking, what is the cultural emergency? Mm. What is the cultural moment mm. that you feel you will miss if you don't celebrate that. And when you talk about cultural mm. emergency, that only makes sense for this specific community. So, for example, if you talk to the, the, the wider Muslim community, you would know, oh, the cultural emergency is maybe Ramadan mm. and mm. Eid. So for them, it's as important as bringing maybe food to the house. Yeah, so we started really exploring the subjects from the perspective of the, of the communities we were working with because we just... To be really honest with you, David, we didn't have any answer. Mm. We didn't have any intelligence or any smart thing to bring to the mm. table. And we knew very well that any smart move will not come from us, but will be uh, very much directed by the people we're working with. It's such an inspiring way to work and to think, because it just it contrasts somehow in my mind with the general response of the cultural sector which seemed in that moment to go on to kind of broadcast mode you know what can we broadcast digitally on television online in order to get the work that we have created out to people um, which just seems to contrast so dramatically in every way to what you've just described which is not to sort of ask people what they need or where they're at or what their cultural emergency might be. We, we all are working within some models and those models, sometimes they do shape the way we can 
react to situations that are in front of us. Uh, and there are the, the reality is there are some brilliant, brilliant people who are working in the cultural industry, from freelancers, creatives, team members, even at the leadership uh, uh, level, board members. And we are all kind of trying to navigate our way through a system that wasn't built specifically for today. Mm. And it's really tricky and it's really, really challenging. And I uh, just in, in this occasion, I uh, just want to share with you how um, overwhelmed I was by the, the just the amazing response from the cultural sector and from all my colleagues. And I do also understand that the challenges that we're all facing are kind of different. Uh, so I want to acknowledge, for example, that one of the things that we didn't have to face is our business model is not based on selling yeah. tickets. So that offered an opportunity to focus on other things that we thought were more important. Uh, not to say that we had it easy. We have our own challenges, yeah. but they're just kind of different. But it is really, really tricky to try to make change and to navigate within a system that wasn't built to change, mm. if that makes mm. sense. So your culture plan B for me was something that is really welcome, a space to have to uh, kind of discuss what if things were different and also how can we kind of change the paradigm and how can we do that by being all together and not leaving anyone behind us. When you look at that, the current kind of paradigm, to use your word, the current shape of the sector, the way that it works, are there observations that you would like to go further with, I guess, in terms of when you say, yeah, we're now in a time where we're looking to change, but we're not set up in a system or a structure which is necessarily encouraging mm -hmm. that change. I wonder if you want to say a bit more about that. Before I go to that, I, I just want to uh, um, talk about a small experience I had during these four years, which I think really helped me rethink about my previous experience yeah. and, and, and put it all through the lens of looking at change and trying to understand how change happens. Greenfield was for me a huge moment that affected me personally because there were a lot of Moroccan families in that building. And for me, it came as, a, as an event where I had specific perception. I really thought that this event would bring a huge national change. Mm. Uh, but watching the, uh, what was happening around Greenfield, I kind of figured out this idea of, oh, maybe we are in a system that Actually, even if all of us as individuals want to bring change, maybe there is something in mm. the system. And I really wanted to try to understand that. And a big shout out to Gemma and Galen and the team who is working at Step Change uh, in the National Theatre for pushing me to explore that uh, further and supporting me to go to South Korea where I had previous experience around change. And South Korea has uh, gone through a huge um not revolution, it wasn't evolution. It was a moment where all the communities around the nation came out to the streets and shouted that they wanted change. And that change happened in the most amazing uh, and inspiring way. And I just wanted to kind of try and understand where was that coming? And is there a cycle? Mm. And to, to don't go too much on this subject, but what I've understood from that is for change to happen, you need an event, an event that is so important that you can't do things the same mm -hmm. way anymore. So that's the first thing that triggers change. And then you kind of need to answer why are we changing? How are we changing? And what are we doing 
to make that change yeah. happen. Because the reality and on the reflection again about this last uh, four or five years, I think I've witnessed uh, major events uh, happening in the UK. It was the first one around Brexit and then uh, the cultural sector after Brexit started asking themselves, oh, well, what can we do with migrants? What can we do with all of these people that are coming? And maybe they're not feeling that there is something about around accessibility. And you had all these amazing conversations. Then we had something around Greenfield. And there were, again, amazing conversations. Uh, and then we had the environmental crisis and now COVID and then uh, the Black Lives Matter. And it feels that we are stuck in a um, cycle where we are led by change and we're not leading change. And from what I'm hearing is the we would all love the cultural sector to start leading mm. change in, instead of responding to change after the trend and then not having the capacity to take ideas uh, to action. And what I'm seeing now is a, is a really fantastic response in terms of how do we make change. And I don't think we need any more consultations. We have a wealth of amazing ideas that are just on Twitter, <laughs> proposed by amazing and inspiring people who actually can take the ideas to action. Yeah, so we have that and we have different hows. And it, my contribution to this how is I would love to see venues that are led by people assemblies. I'd love to see venues that are really accountable to the community. Um, and you can, you can see all of these answers and all of these answers are tackling governance, are tackling the business yeah. model, are tackling accountability, diversity, yeah. etc. So I think there is enough work there to start actioning that. And I guess my contribution to that is the question, okay, how can we support action in this? Is I would really support a hyper-local approach. And for example, if anyone has come with any great idea, we are today in a situation where there is an opportunity for venues to listen and venues do want change. And maybe sometimes they are struggling with that. So if you're a creative, if you're an artist, if you're a creative community and you have all of these brilliant ideas, just contact the venue in your mm, neighborhood, mm. have those discussions mm. with them, ask the questions and have that conversation. Mm. I don't know if all the venues will be open to have that, but I am certain that some mm. will have those mm. venues. I've seen artistic directors retweeting some of these uh, propositions. I've seen some venues really being supportive. So let's start those discussions and let's actually start the change from a hyper-local perspective. So that we have the how on yeah. one side. Then why do we want to change? Well, I think that's something that we can all agree about. It's how do we put it? It's um, it's kind of a shit show. It's a shit show for people who have any um, people with disability, people who come from minorities. There are so many people who are mm. feeling that they are excluded yeah. from the cultural sector. And I think that's something that everyone can mm. agree about. The government, all the partners that we're working with, councils, members of communities. So that that's great. We are not disagreeing about the mm. why. And where I am kind of trying to reflect today uh, and kind of mumbling around that idea is around, okay, well, we have the why, we have the how, but what are we trying to change? Mm. And I think it's in exploring this what that we maybe will be able to come with some policies that will support us to achieve the mm. how. 
and again, as I said, I'm kind of mumbling. I don't really have an answer to this question, but where my mind is at the moment is maybe there is something about the relationship we have with communities. At the moment, we are doing brilliantly to bring uh, or to actually start bringing communities to be part of conversations. Yeah. And we are brainstorming with them and we're having more and more discussions and we're, we're really trying to explore that. But I think that it would be more, not more interesting, but equally interesting to also explore how to also make communities part of the ecology instead of just having discussions mm. with them. How can they also be a key mm. player within the ecology, within how we're funding, within how the power dynamics are distributed. And one of the ideas that is growing more and more in my mind is what would it look like if we worked with a central government to explore an idea of a tax relief, an art tax relief that would maybe give to each community member in the UK the possibility to take £10, £20 from their taxes to contribute directly within artists in their neighbourhood. And you can imagine, let's, uh, I don't know, let's let's just imagine Brixton. And maybe Brixton is a neighbourhood that has uh, maybe more than 100,000 people are living in mm. Brixton. And you can imagine if you had the opportunity that each member could maybe give every year a £10 that they can take out of those taxes to contribute directly to artists. Well, you can directly see that artists are starting to not fundraise only from the Art Council and from all these funders, but are also starting to look at that as a revenue opportunity that will strengthen that direct relationship between communities and artists. And something like this may support the brilliant idea that uh, Conrad, for example, proposed, because you can imagine mm. if someone like Conrad could fundraise and have with his project 1,000 residents that are backing this, uh, this idea or this project, then you already are changing the power dynamics. When you come to the venue, you're coming not only with a project, but also with uh, audience. And I think something like that, that will create a direct relationship where community members are directly investing in the art, not in venues, but in the artists and in creatives. And communities are also able to, let's say, uh, this year they will maybe bring 10 artists that will stay for a year within that community. But the community is also able to shape and to curate and to support and you'll have a better representation. This is amazing. I'm going to stop you because you've just come up with two extraordinary ideas, which I feel like are both uh, sort of light bulb moments for me. But I just want to pause and capture them a bit and and just explore them both a bit more. Um, so you've kind of completely uh, reshaped and reimagined the way arts and culture funding works in the country with, uh, with a really exciting idea around people spending power, and that would genuinely put resources in the hands of communities to be able to commission, select, develop um, artists, organisations in their community. And I think that's very interesting because there's been various conversations in Culture Plan B and elsewhere about the sort of decentralisation of funding and that what you've described takes that a kind of uh, to an nth degree, if you like, to an extraordinary degree of actually making sure that that sits with people. But so we should come back to that. But you've also talked about, which was a huge penny drop moment for me, which is how to enact change. How do we make change happen? And 
And I, yeah, like you, I've always thought we there are there are lots of ideas. <laughs> there are loads of amazing ideas out there. I've always thought that about TED Talks. Though you know there are about ninety thousand, probably by now a hundred thousand TED Talks online. All of them amazing, extraordinary ideas. It's like surely we have all the ideas of how to innovate, how to change, how to make things better. But actually, the the logjam seems to be, you know, have all of those ideas been delivered? Have you know are we making those things happen? And I. I totally support what you're saying about the cultural sector, which is that there are so many good ways of working and there are great examples of companies that are doing that. But the thing that you said, which I thought was just so profoundly brilliant, was is if we want to make those things happen, let's make them happen in our local community, because actually that is an area where each of us has some kind of locus, has a connection, has an ability, you know, as a voter, as a neighbour, as a resident, as a community member, has an opportunity to try and make those changes happen. And I think actually when I think about the most extraordinary companies that are leading change, it's it's perhaps then therefore unsurprising that they are, you know, one of the strands that is uh, consistent across those companies is that they are developing profoundly uh, work on a local basis. Now, that isn't to say that that work isn't world class. And I think that's often something that people massively misunderstand. When you start talking about local work, they immediately assume that somehow that that doesn't have a relationship to global uh, standards and quality and all of that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah. well, you, you know, you know what they say is the the more local, the more global. Yeah. We all are human beings. And if you dig into your locality, any story that is super, super local means that it, that it has authenticity in it. But it also has all those emotions and feelings that makes it global. So, um, yeah, it's, there, is a, there is a word that they, they use in Asia, and I'm, I'm not sure if uh, it is really used in, in Britain. And it's around the concept of glocality. And it's it's that mix about that the more you're local, the more you can reach the world, actually. So it's a very powerful idea and it's an incredibly simple idea as well. And I always think the best ideas are the most simple and straightforward. And it may it's, it me as you were talking, it just immediately made me think about where I live and the the work that is going on around here and how to support that work and how to support change. Because, yeah, there is something and you mentioned Twitter, but, you know, the kind of the social media platforms and the and the cultural sector, which we're so good at talking to ourselves. We are so good at kind of and Culture Plan B, this podcast series is a great example of, you know, the sector once again talking to itself. But what you're saying, which I think is so profoundly brilliant, is that take those ideas from those conversations where we are all talking to ourselves and, and there's so many great ideas and I've looked about half a dozen of them this morning on social media and thought wow that's brilliant that's great that's great but rather than just thinking wow that's brilliant that's great that's great actually think okay how do how do we do that here what's our version of that how do we how do we create that here and that feels that feels very exciting to me. And then, and then the reality is, is uh, uh, one of the uh, really, really exciting things about the UK is it, it's a really diverse yeah. country. And then maybe the solution is not one model. It's, it's, there is a diversity of mm, models mm. that are really not only responsive to, to their uh, locality, but can also change with time. And coming back to uh, just the idea of bringing the community to be part of the ecology, I think the idea is that we're inviting someone else to sit in the table rather than destroying the table and building a different one. 
Because as mm. I said, for me, what, what's really key is that we all are going through that journey. I know any idea comes with a lot of complexities, but uh, in my mind, something like the community contributing, it could, it could even be vultures to artists that then can bring to the art council to get that money out. And I think the essence of that idea is how do we bring the community from just taking part of conversations to be an active player within the ecology. So look, that's uh, awesome and is exciting. So let me throw a challenge at it now. Let me let me see if uh, if we can if we can yeah try and talk about the reality of how complex it is to make that happen because we know there are companies around the country, you guys in Slough, Slunglow in Leeds, Noel West Media Centre in South Bristol, and I could list many others that are doing that and that are doing extraordinary work and interestingly have reacted and responded during the pandemic in very immediate ways, the kind of ways that you discussed earlier. But let's be honest, there's £1.57 billion which has been just awarded by the Secretary of State for Culture, Oliver Dowden, to the crown jewels to use his words or perhaps to be a bit less pejorative to preserve the cultural institutions of this country and so the reality is, is that the, the cultural sector is made up of giant players cultural institutions which i think i would be as bold to say that do not work in the, in the ways that you have just described and as you say many are sort of showing a willingness and an openness to to change and of course many do do great work already however much that may be at the fringes of their own organization so let's be honest how how when you have that insightful clear thinking about let's take these brilliant ideas for democratizing culture for change and let's implement them locally because that's how we can have the greatest locus and the most impact of actually making that change happen does it then matter that there are, you know, that the mainstream of the cultural sector is not doing that? Does it matter that the £1.57 billion is largely going to support the largest cultural and national organisations which are not doing that? Does that it what, matters. Yeah, what does... I think it matters. What doesn't matter is that we have venues that are just doing that. For me, that doesn't matter because I am a really great supporter of diversity. We want big players that may feel inaccessible to us, but at the same time, we want venues that are working directly with communities. And so we want doors that can open. And I don't think it's realistic that all doors will open. But this this is really key um, to also the success of the uh, British culture, even around the world. That, for me, does not matter. That all venues are uh, following the same uh, model or have communities at their center as long as we do have some in the mix. It does matter that the 1.57 billion would go to uh, the crown jewels in the country. And why it matters for me is because the definition of the government about what crown jewels are is very different from my own definition. Uh, my own definition yeah. is cr of crown jewels are the freelancers, creatives, and all the people who are on the ground. And I do disagree uh, about the approach that money will save venues. Money will take venues out of the storm. And that's a really short-term planning and a short-term yeah. yeah. strategy. The yeah. one thing that will save venues today is the people. We will save venues. Yeah. 
it's the freelancers, it's the communities, audiences, um, you know, yeah. it's all of those people who are actually making the work. And in reality, the central job of a venue is to facilitate between the service provider, which are all of these beautiful people, and the client, which is the customer. Uh, so the fact that all of this money is invested only, and I hope it doesn't sound pejorative, it, it's not at all, but mm. let's call mm. it the middleman. If all the money comes mm. just to the middleman, that is a huge mm. issue. And we will see impact in the next decade. The reality is that today we've, we've actually done a lot of efforts for generations to get to where we are today. And we're not in a perfect situation, but there has been progress. And that progress took years and years and took a lot of sacrifices from so many people. And now in less than a second, we can lose that and end up in a worse situation. Because if we are looking ahead, David, we have two choices. It's either we're gonna end up in a worse situation or in a better situation. There is no yeah. in-between. Uh, I think we should fight really, really hard to make the case to the government uh, about how this money is going to be distributed. I, For me, I really, really do think that most of it should support the people who are making the work, uh, the people who are reimagining the impossible, reimagining how a venue can start to be accessible. It's the, the, the amazing work that Tourette's Hero did when she came and under your leadership and, and the amazing work that the team at BAC did to reimagine how BAC can start becoming a, a relaxed venue. It's all of those people who are changing the impossible to start being possible. Yeah. It's those people that need for me to be supported. And yeah, we, we, we really, really need to be careful about the next steps. And I would... I would do a shout out to all of these uh, uh, crowd Jews or whatever they're called. If they do receive that money, to be mm. very, very careful on how that money is going to be distributed and mm. where will it go. And if the government, mm. and if we fail to have that discussion with the government and for the government to not understand that this money needs to support the ground, and if it goes to the crown jewels, then we need to mm. start a discussion with those venues to understand yeah. how this money is going to be spent. Uh, but I am, yeah. I am very anxious, uh, David, and I'm, I am a fortunate and in a, in a privileged uh, situation today where I have a job and it's quite secure. But I'm on the phone every single day with people who are feeling really anxious, who are at the edge of leaving this industry mm. and may never come back to it. But we're losing talent yeah. today. It's even uh, bigger than losing talent. What we are losing is we're losing passion and we're losing belief. And that, mm. I think, is really tricky. Yeah. Looking at it pessimistically, if, if the Department of Culture, Media and Sport write the guidelines for, those, for the 1.57 billion and the Arts Council, as much as they might try with their lottery cash to plug a gap with freelancers, but obviously you know lottery cash i can't remember how much it is they've announced between now and april it may be something like 60 million pounds which in england obviously is spread across thousands and thousands and thousands of practitioners which is a very different amount of money to 1.57 billion uh, 1570 million is a very different figure to 60 million and however much they might try to kind of support the freelancers and those and as you say the 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 actual the actual crown jewels of the sector and the community groups um who actually create and make culture 
do you think we should try and how do we what do we do do we try and write a set of guidelines for those cultural institutions do we just trust that the 50 biggest cultural institutions in the country will take that money and think okay how many artists are we going to employ okay how many community groups are we going to engage in actually thinking about the shape of our program do we or do we need to do something in this moment do we need to try and intervene in this moment do we need to try and create an intervention which which actually makes some practical, pragmatic suggestions for actually, of course, we understand that you've got to preserve the bricks and mortar of your institution, but actually this is a moment not to just think about the productions that you want to put on in the future, but actually this is a moment to reach out and connect with communities and reach out and connect with tens of thousands of freelancers and to support them. When, I, when I'm thinking about that, I'm really not thinking about trust. Trust for me is, is irrelevant. Uh, what's relevant is to understand that we as human beings, we see things from our own perspective. And what we want to add is different perspectives to that discussion. And the reality is if I was leading one of those venues and if I received the money, with all my, uh, uh, my sweet talk, I'll have mm. the venue as my objective to say, yeah? And I will, it, yes, that's, that's job. my job. And that's, what, and that's the only perspective that my position will offer me. Uh, and it's, it's yeah. always a limited perspective. So yes, I would encourage people to start those discussions with those venues at a higher level. And I know that for um, some of these institutions, even their team members are starting those discussions. So I would definitely encourage those discussions. And again, it's not about trust or not trust, but it's about adding perspective yeah. to yeah. that discussion. And to pick up your idea from earlier as well, that we should do that locally. I think so. So I, I, should, I should connect with you know, Theatre Royal Plymouth down the road and just see if there's anything yes. I can do to support them to think about yes. this next stage. Any Anybody who's in it, I mean, I'm not a very good example because at the moment I'm I'm looking after my kids and, and doing bits and pieces, but I guess for freelancers out there that are practising and working with communities and 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 also creating work that that's that's an idea that they should, you know, that they should connect with the local organisations and be Yes. yes, and if if necessary, buddy up with other people if it helps you to feel. If, if you can, if you if you can go through bringing in small people as a s assembly in your neighbourhood, which will have some creatives yeah. and some. If if you can yeah. have that, but please do have a discussion with your local venue, and please be kind. It's really really challenging yeah. for venues. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's yeah. not about yeah. confrontation. It's about how can Absolutely. we add perspective. Yeah. It, it's also about making a point that, hey, we're here and we have a voice and the venue matters. And it's it's a little bit about shifting the perspective that when you come to the venue, you're not coming as a guest anymore. But the venue is also yours. And it's it's um, about yeah. facilitating that uh, that space. And I, I think we have some fantastic people who will be able to lead those discussions with venue leaders. On another point, uh, uh, David, let's let's just be realistic we will not be able to solve everything and we might fail. Yeah. But failure is the best step to change. Maybe what we're doing now, we're taking it through. Yeah, we're taking, we're taking a wrong di a direction, but let's always make sure that this will feed into a long lasting change. I do hear the voices coming out from communities and from diverse uh, minorities, etc. And I do know that there are a lot of emotions. But if you dig 
through this emotion, there is also a lot of passion. So people today are passionate and they really want change to happen. Um, and sometimes maybe for us, as people who are part of the cultural industry, maybe there is a time for us just to kind of step back and just support and facilitate instead of implement the change itself. Uh, but we do have some really big discussions coming ahead and they are going to be difficult discussions and they are going to be uh, very challenging for venues, for the people who are working and leading those venues, but equally challenging for the communities and creatives. And maybe there will need to be some support or facilitation, but all of that is to say, yes, have those discussions. Try to make the change in your local neighborhood. Uh, and that's where change will start is, is by changing the ground and having those discussions and those conversations. And yes, the money is a huge issue. And yes, we, we are going to see people left out and we are going to have a huge shift and we are going to lose talent no matter what we do. But let's just keep focus on that change. Let's keep focus on achieving the hyper-local, but also figuring out how we can bring communities and more voices to be part of that ecology. And really, for me, like a well done and a huge applaud to everyone who is taking part of those discussions and have been for these last three months. It was very challenging, overwhelming, uh, 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 and we have some superheroes in this industry that are most of the time not visible, but we have some really, really great people. And it's now about supporting how do we uh, get intention and ideas to the next level. I will talk about a very, very small example, David. Please do. And it's something for that took me to reflect about myself. And I, I would like to uh, also uh, open the invitation for all of us to start that reflection with, within us. I was looking at a really brilliant conference online and it brought in some leaders from different venues. And it was chaired by someone also from the industry. And there was a question at the end. Uh, what are you ready to give up for change? And there was a consensus around giving up power. And mm. that's the idea where mm. we need some self-reflection to take ideas to action is that if you rewind that mm. same online conference to the beginning, one of the people who were present presented themselves as being a chair of three different organizations. Mm. That's where we can make change from tomorrow. Mm. If you mm. have too much position of power, then tomorrow mm. you can step up or step down from that position, bring in someone, support mm. them to grow and get the right mm. skills to then lead that space themselves. So there is a mm. lot of change that we can do within ourselves, uh, then the change mm. that we can do in our neighborhood, then the big change that will answer the what then do we do within the nation, what are the policies or the laws that we can implement that will support all of that change to happen. Mm, that's amazing. Are you concerned in terms of the voices that we are not hearing from in some of these debates? I'm conscious that, you know, that there are communities that are shielding and that are therefore less heard, visible, less present, and potentially will be less invited by cultural organisations when they start to reopen. You mentioned Tourette's Hero earlier on in this conversation and just thinking about some of the artists, the makers, the change makers and actually also the community members who are 
excluded from and 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 perhaps uh, you know and Jess Tom from Tourette's Hero would say this much more articulately than I can but you know have have always been excluded from cultural institutions on some level um some in a very kind of profound way and it feels like for all of the sort of work around you know accessibility and inclusion which one can say has been extraordinary in terms of the work that artists like Jess have have done but actually also yeah in in areas of the sector has not made the difference mm. that it should have but actually it feels like there is a risk in this moment I don't want to be pessimistic but there is a I just want to be real that there is a risk in this moment that actually the sector which was already really really struggling on inclusion and access that its track record was pretty piss poor in some areas in terms of how it welcomed engaged connected with empowered people it's potentially going to get a lot worse yeah. before 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 potentially it gets better. And I wonder whether, yeah, mm. if you have any reflections on that. First, I, I don't think that you're uh, being pessimistic at all. For me, my understanding of this space is as a risk assessment. And as any risk assessment, you, you have to respond to the worst situation. What if it went south? And this is what we're going to do. Uh, so it's, mm. it's really not about being pessimistic. And everything mm. that, for me, we've spoken about today is, OK, if things don't work, then what do we do? And I think having a yeah. robust risk assessment is really good. We could have spent this hour talking about the amazing things that we have, and we, we would have filled more than an hour with that. So <laughs> we, we do recognize that there are some incredible things yeah. that we have, and we are very fortunate as a country uh, to have quite a strong cultural industry, but our yeah. what we want to do is to take it to the next uh, step. So look, David, I don't, I don't really have an answer to this, but what I can share is our approach from Homeslau. What we did is, again, very early, we were very conscious about this because we have some people that we work with who are going to SHIELD. Uh, so all the program that we've kind of built, we had the online program, which was connecting with the people who are connected online. And we had an offline program. And with that offline program, we were really looking at people who either don't have access to internet, don't have access mm. to a phone, but also are shielding. So since the um, maybe the second or third week uh, after we shut down, mm. we started working with a community of people who are shielding in their houses on an exhibition. So we've sent them art equipment and every week we have discussions with them. And that exhibition is growing. And as soon as they can come, they will take over all the space and have that exhibition and really start to take the stories and their experience from shielding and being stuck in their homes to start sharing that with the community but it also gives them a milestone that is coming in the future and i think it had a great yeah. uh, impact on their well-being so that's that's one of the approaches we have the second approach that we are having now is to look at okay we've been able to involve people in being creatives now how about the people who just want to be entertained uh, so, for example, uh, we're starting now to send a uh, oh, this really brilliant cello player from uh, Slough. Uh, her name is Leonie. Mm. She's, she's just amazing. And she is going now outside of care homes to play an hour of uh, mm. music to people who are shielding inside care homes. But all of these connections and us being really aware of people who cannot access either the venue or cannot access the program, etc., means that every week, we have discussions with them. And I think those discussions do feed into our thinking. And I wouldn't want to say that I am here as a representative 
But mm. I would say that I am here a little bit aware of very few challenges that I do keep in my mind. So yes, if you are programming, if you are having discussions, if, if you are looking forward uh, and you're looking at reimagining what the future is, again, on a local perspective and for mm. venues, it should just really be aware about who is not in the room. How can we get in touch with them and how can they be part of that discussion? We have a lot of resources that can support us uh, through the online. We now have in all of these Zoom discussions. So I think that a lot of shielded people are part of some of the discussions, but we also want to make them part of the group of makers who are responding creatively to what is happening today. So yes, if, if anyone is running a venue and we're doing that uh, constantly and we're nowhere near where we should be, is to constantly step back and be like, okay, this group was easy for us to access and to do work with, uh, but who wasn't easy and who is missing and having those constant conversations and just being aware that we evolve with time. We're nowhere near perfect. There are so many people that even we are missing and we find challenging. We don't have those answers, but um, trying to keep the conversation and at least keeping aware of who is missing is, is really, really important. All those task force that the government and DCMS uh, have brought in are great and we are pushing forward to have more representation uh, in those discussions. And also explaining how does your discussion feed into the decision making Saad, you are always an inspiration and incredibly fair-minded and you have incredible humility about everything that you've said today. So it is such a pleasure to have had to, had this opportunity to catch up with you, spend time with you and hear what you're doing with Home Slough. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, David, for having me and thank you and thank you to all your brilliant team. We hope you enjoyed this fifth episode of Culture Plan B. Big thanks to Saad for an inspiring chat. If you want to find out more about Home in Slough, then visit www.homeslough.org.uk. You can contact us at Culture Plan B with ideas for the podcast by emailing us at cultureplanb at gmail.com. Do follow us on Instagram or Twitter for information on future episodes or series. This episode was researched and presented by David Jubb. The editors and sound mixers are Ian Dickinson and George Dennis. The music is from Don't Tell Me by Conrad Murray with Kate and Nate from BAC's Beatbox Academy. Communication support from Antonia Goddard with thanks to David Bellwood for helping us to make the series more inclusive and accessible. Original artwork by John Borsa and the producer and creator is Matthew Dunster. Mm-hmm.